You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf. And welcome to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community. I'm happy to welcome my guest today who is going to share how to create a brand and product from the ground up. Uh, ask you all to pause, subscribe, leave a review, like, follow, whatever it is that you're allowed to do on the platform on which you are listening to or watching this. With that, I want to uh, get into introducing my guest today. Now, he is the chief strategy officer for clients through his company, Quantum Branding, uh, where they do workshops, 12-week courses, direct client engagements. Uh, it's an evidence-based branding agency based out of Nashville, Tennessee, my hometown. Uh, helps clients create brands and products that sell. Uh, works for both brands and agencies. Uh, the website name is quantumbranding.agency. And with that, I give you Stephen Fry. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you for having me. I, I feel like we've done this before. I feel like I'm getting like a sense of, of uh, nostalgia vu. and deja vu. Uh, remind me, though, how do I properly pronounce your name again? Uh, it is phonetically Stephen, but I go by Stephen. So, yes. And but so the last Stephen name is Fry. Fry. Did I say that Fry. right? Fry. Yeah, you said okay. it correctly. Okay. Because right. it's F-R-E-Y. So, all right. Just, uh, just making that. All right, Stephen or Stephen or Stephen Fry, got it. So great to uh, great to talk with you today. And I, I guess I want to just start by getting into giving a quick context for you know talking about creating a brand, creating an agency. Quick two minute context and background on yourself. Like, how did it get to be that you're that you're doing what you're doing now? So we have some context. Sure, sure. Uh, so 2008. Uh, I don't know if anybody uh, was in. The, the the occupational world working then, but uh, come Christmas of 2008, the agency I was at closed and oh, yeah. uh, got our, our two week letters right before Christmas. And so oh, it was wait. a stressful time. I spent my whole vacation sending out resumes, uh, didn't spend time with family, uh, but that time caused me to reflect what I was good at, what I enjoyed. Um, and so there were uh, some, you know, few few overlaps of success and satisfaction in my paths mm-hmm. um and they they tended to be all about branding um i had uh been the creative director at an agency uh for the past several years and then also went through undergoing uh rebranding two agencies that i'd worked at and so i was like yes i want to uh continue to do this so uh come january of 2009 opened the doors to my own shop I mm-hmm. uh, also decided to get an MFA uh, in in my field in branding, and um, mm-hmm. so uh, was valedictorian 4.0. Uh, but that wasn't the goal. The goal was to just do to get a degree in something I loved. Mm-hmm. And so the last kind of final piece came together. So I opened my agency. I go back to school to get my MFA, and then um, I discovered a couple books, and one of them was. Uh, by Alina Wheeler in its designing brand identity. There's several editions. Well, I had had it on my shelf for years. Mm-hmm. Every every few years, a new edition came out. And while I loved it, and it was like almost like my my handbook or some would even say Bible right. that I just always was going to, uh, there was a component missing. And the, mis- the component wasn't um, how to do branding. The component was why to do branding. And so mm-hmm. it led me on a path today uh, to uh, understand the science of how brands grow 
and the science of how branding works. And so uh, that really helped catapult uh, my agency in, in, in my career and the work that I do from there. That's awesome. I mean, I think a great side lesson uh, on that for people, whether they're business owners of multiple people or solopreneurs or whatever they, whatever they are, uh, or even if they're still in their careers, is that question that you asked yourself uh, when you were out of work, which is a question I asked myself also when I've been out of work in the past, which is what is that nexus looking back at whatever you've done in the past, like what's that nexus between what you enjoyed doing, like got paid for and got satisfaction from, um, right? If to the extent you can move your career or your business in that direction, um, it, you're going to make more money, you're going to be more effective uh, and you're going to be more happy, happier and get more satisfaction. I mean, that's a, I just, not what we're supposed to technically talk about today, but just another lesson I take away from what you talked about. Well, thanks. Thanks for pointing it out. And I definitely agree. There's something about, uh, there's several books out there, uh, The Power of Uniqueness by Arthur Miller Jr. or uh, The Color of Your Parachute. You know, any assessments you can do into how you're wired and where you find joy, but also are really successful. Because um, there's things I'm good at that I don't enjoy. There's things that I enjoy right. that I'm not good at finding those two. Uh, right. So that really, things you really, enjoy really that don't make that. money. This is true. This is true. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, probably not, not the best candidates for career or business ideas. <laughs> right. It's got to be all those things together. Um, so speaking about creating a brand, like you, you, somebody wants to launch a new product, launch a new service, whatever it is. So thinking about this topic, that's that's your niche, that's your expertise. Uh, you know, one of the things that we I wanted to cover with you are like, like what are the biggest like if people are thinking about this topic, what are the biggest branding myths that need to be debunked? Sure, sure. So so we first have to start before I can even talk about what you know branding everyone likes to talk about like what branding is and they think like, yeah, this is, this is, you know, what people feel about you. Um, I really, really kind of side on the very functional side. I like to stick to where the science is. So marketing is the functional promotion of trade. You don't make cell phones. I don't make cars. I don't know, unless you make cell phones and I'm, you know, I, but I do we don't make cell phones or cars. So how do we know whom to purchase those things from? Think back to the days where I would trade you, you know, a chicken for some, you know, some cheese or, or you know, a barrel of something for some wheat. You know, uh, we no longer trade like that. We work in a modern economy. And so we have modern trade. So marketing facilitates modern trade. So marketing is literally, hey, do business with me. So if everyone's saying, hey, do business with me, how do we get people to remember whom to do business with? If everyone's saying, hey, and so this gets into right. the methodology of the types of marketing. So we have digital marketing, print, you know, originally we started with print and radio, and then there was the advent of TV and, and, you know, cable. And then what, uh, I was in a conversation the other day and someone said, yeah, it used to be called new media back in 2004, digital media. We called it new media as if mm -hmm. it was like something pioneering, you know, so now we have everything from, you know, online to social media to, you know trackers and bots and and all those things function to facilitate trade branding is this really unique subset 
within marketing that says, hey, think of me first. And the way we do that is by having a, the most famous and unique or distinct brand assets uh, that create memories. So really it's about memories. It's like the movie Inception meets Total Recall that you are planting a memory of the win-win podcast, you know, with your typeface, your colors, and then all the other sensory assets because, because really advertising works in the mind of the person. So advertising is saying, it really, you know, advertising and the marketing are, are the same thing. Advertising is just marketing. You have to pay for someone to do for you, really. Mm-hmm. You know, so a billboard, you had to pay someone to put it up there. So that's advertising. You know, you paid for it. You know, so marketing is do business with me. Branding is the subset of unique sensory assets. Word, shape, color, story, illustration, photography, sound, music, character, you know, if you host your own podcast, you are in, in sense a person that people associate. So then it's you, your name, your face on top of all the other assets. So the goal is to get to people to think of you first. And brand okay. science is this really nerdy quarter of, of marketing, which helps people assess how to grow and sell based on evaluating their brands, their brands, identities, their sensory assets. So that's kind of the caveat. So uh, to, to back up, Mm -hmm. your question was, how do we start? You know, the first thing really is the first thing really is to evaluate your brand's assets. And your brand is more than a logo. Even if your logo, uh, your, your brand mark, I call it was designed by Michelangelo or somebody very incredible Uh, the average business only has three assets, typically their name, their brand mark, their name, you know, we'll make that two, a color, and then, you know, maybe a tagline, three or four, the average commercial blue chip brand, think of Coca-Cola, how many brand assets do they have? They have 150 and counting. They have everything Mm -hmm. from the color to the word mark, to a tagline, to a song, to a packaging shape, to polar bears and Santa Claus. So, so anyways, now that we understand a little bit about brand science, I think we can hop over uh, to your question. You know, what are some of the things that we should and shouldn't be doing? If, if we want to be top of mind, Uh what are the things that we want to be doing? So I actually, um, I, I, uh, have a, I have a three things that I brought today that okay. uh, we're going to poke the bear a little bit with, uh, and you can decide if they're true and false, uh, but uh, those myths. Uh, so uh, myth number one, or statement number one, the ultimate goal of marketing, and you can answer for this, the, uh, the audience here uh, for them, the ultimate goal of my marketing, true or false, is to show that I'm different. Is one of the major, or not ultimate, one of the major goals right. of my marketing is to show whether I'm different. Uh, what do you think? Well, look, we, we talked a minute ago, or you mentioned a minute ago, how your goal is to think of me first, right? So then I would want to be different. I mean, a true, right? Is that the goal of marketing thinking, right? I, I think you gave me a hint before. So I'm going to, I think, I'm going to say true. The goal of marketing or branding is to be different. So actually uh, that's false. So 
brands, believe it or not, um, exist in their own category. And this is a great example of semiotics. Semiotics is the way that our mind puts things in little boxes. Mm-hmm. And if he's into sports or competitions, you're familiar with brackets, like the March Madness bracket. Think right. of that as how your mind thinks. So your mind thinks in categories that it makes as it goes along. We all live in the same geographic area. If we live in the same town, some of those boxes are going to be the same based on the things that we pass, the things that we see. So there's a lot of cultural contextualization that occurs. So that's why sometimes branding in America makes sense, but then you take that brand to Europe and it doesn't make sense Mm -hmm. because there's different meanings and contexts there. So to back up, our mind puts these things in these little boxes. So if you think of something in the fridge that is white, that's in the door, that's a condiment, that's in a jar, that's also a vegetable, your mind probably went, oh, milk, oh, oh, no, eggs, oh, mayonnaise, oh, uh, crap, Um, horseradish? So your mind went through these little boxes and it's that same thing. And so the best way that I illustrate this is to think of the cookie aisle. Do you have a favorite cookie? Uh, Big fan of Oreos. Try not to eat them for, you know, trying to maintain my girlish figure, but, uh, but I am uh, definitely an Oreo. Oreo. Yeah. So I like currently eating them, but uh, I like Oreos as well. But what does it for me is, is white chocolate macadamia nut and and usually like the Pepperidge Farms or another brand that is uh, uh, kind of like crispy on the outside, soft in the middle. Usually they come in parchment cups and they're in a tall bag, but yours is Oreos. So yours is blue and it's, it's in the tray with a sticky lid. And that's a really good example of uh, a few things. One, it's, it's an example of uh, trade dress and customer cues. And then mm-hmm. it's a good example of IP. So the IP is the name Oreo, intellectual property. IP is Oreo. It's the color they use on their package. It's Nabisco. It's the shape that's on the cookie. It's the story of dunking the cookie. Pepper Charms, mine, mine doesn't have much of a story. Uh, mine just has, you know, the, the packaging. There's a little farm that's kind of neutrals. It looks bougie. Um, I think we all used to think Pepper Charms was bougie until we started eating them. Uh, you know, so, so, but, but that's a good example of trade dress. Certain, certain cookies, sandwich cookies are in trays. Right. Fancier big chunk cookies are in parchment cups. And then right. you using, know, I don't want to, if I have a, if I have a sandwich cookie, I don't want to not put it in a tray to be different. That's what you're saying. Mm, so here's the interesting thing. Well, it's not about the tray. It's about following the customer cues. Can people easily navigate? Think of it. Let's mix our metaphors even more. Let's say baseball. First base is the customer cues. We've got to get to first base with the customer and say, just what is it? Oh, chocolate chip, butterscotch, cinnamon, snickerdoodle. So we have to navigate what people are expecting in our category. So Mm -hmm. some of our branding has to share some of those common features of chocolate, chunk, ingredients, flavors, crispy, crunchy, soft, peanut butter, Skittles, rainbow, like what? Like whatever is in, in there that you expect in a cookie or may not expect in a cookie, but is in the cookie. So that's kind of first base. Third base is our other foul line. We have to stay within those bounds. We have to do what works is really the best way to describe it in our category. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't we can't reinvent the cookie because then it's not a cookie. Because if we try to do something different, 
You're not a cookie anymore. Your cake, your pie, your crackers, or your chips. And then you'd be in a different aisle and you wouldn't sell. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were like, man, I, but Stephen, we're really distinct. We're homemade, we're handmade, handcrafted. We come in a little tub, we're baked fresh. Well, that's awesome. But you belong in the bakery then. You're all, all together a different category. Mm-hmm. So when customers are in your category or aisle, back to our first metaphor, they are looking for cues to understand who you are, what you do. They're not yet quite why it matters yet. They're on autopilot. And that's why brand science is so important because our minds are on autopilot. And so if we're going to get people's attention, we have to disrupt them. We're not educating people. We're not explaining them our positioning. We're the best ABC and one, two, three. Now, like, you know, um, positioning statements and things like that are great when we want to explain to our team to make sure as a filter, but that's Mm -hmm. not how people think. People are emotional, distracted viewers that are on autopilot. So you want them to notice your brand in the cookie aisle. They need to be attracted to it. And then they need to get it. They need to get, oh, soft cookies with big chunks. Awesome. Oh, wait, triple, triple mega ultra stuff Oreos. This this is the ultimate achievement. This is the pinnacle of Oreos. I must Human get existence. them. Um, yeah. So so I do love all the Oreo flavors. Don't get me wrong. Lemon has got to be one of the best ones. Uh, so at the end of the day, there are norms in every category. Yellow doesn't mean happy in the dental category. It's the last thing that's going to make uh-huh. your dentist happy. It means stained teeth. Right. You know, and blue, you know, may mean trust in the business category, but blue also means clean when we're talking about toilet bowl cleaner, because what yeah. other color are you going to want to see in a toilet cleaning your toilet? So there's certain nuances of what is expected mixed with what are the common lexicons of what people already know, those shared memories and then there's the unique ones. And so the goal is, is actually to operate within those bounds. And so uh, showing that you're different may actually alienate the category altogether. You may not make it to first base or you may uh-huh. alienate your industry. So the goal is to, you and I could have the same exact cookie made by the same manufacturer with different packaging that gives a different feel and sell it, and that's what private label branding is, where Kroger or Albertsons or the grocery store or Publix says, hey, we sell a lot of these other competitors. We'd love to offer like the high-end, you know, Hershey's or Godiva chocolate product, but then we want to offer our low economy product, and then we want to offer our medium product, and we want to capture the sales for everything but that so that we can make more margin. So what do they do? They hire someone like myself to, in the example of cookies, come in, help them develop the perception that there are high level cookies, there are low level economy cookies, and then there's medium cookies, and then they can capture more of that money. So back to our question, marketing's goal is not actually to show that you are different. You can actually be the same. You could be better. Yes, you could be different in a little bit, but we would want to say the word distinct. Mm-hmm. And the distinction often comes from the brand assets. It may not actually come from the product because you could actually be the same product. So what we're dealing with is perception. So at the end of the day, 
we are where we'd wanted to adjust uh, our distinctive assets and that be the reason people remember us and have lots of those building memories so right. wow so let's go on to the second yeah, one. yeah okay yeah, the okay. second one what's the second question i'm gonna get this the one second right. question second question uh the the statement the statement is we have a very specific special customer that buys us like they're a special customer unique to us right well i uh i'm not gonna i'm not gonna fall for your tricks this time i know that um that you know in the business world where i'm coming from you know not I guess trying to be all things to all people, trying to uh, be you know be right for everybody, jack of all trades. You end up really making less. You know, by trying to have a broader appeal, you end up appealing to no one because you're not really great at anything or for any one type of person. So I was gonna say, I would say true. You want to have a specific, uh, special customer or or uniquely identified customer. Uh, because otherwise you're, again, there's nothing that differentiates you. You're, you know, you're uh, no reason why anybody would want to choose you from any particular background. Right. Uh, that's like some really good mental ninjaing and, and justification <laughs> and processing. I really appreciate that. Uh, unfortunately, it's just false scientifically speaking. Um, that, like there's no good way to like <laughs> play this game without me sounding like the bad guy uh, right now. Um, <laughs> that's great. And you're false. Uh, so believe really it or not, good try, <laughs> good try. And you're wrong. No, uh, believe it or not, let's take this as a moment to learn why it's false. Uh, okay. so while I would love to entertain that idea, here's a question that do you, if you have a brand and your goal is to make money or create impact, what other your values are, you know, serve the most customers based on your goals. Do you want to serve the most customers or the least customers? I mean, you'd want to grow, right? The most, you want to be, yeah. I mean, do you want yeah. to okay, sales, so, profit, company? Right. If you knew, if you knew that creating a specific customer type alienated and kept you from succeeding, would you do it? Of course not. Of course not. So let's break this down. So uh, I always use this example that there is no such thing as Chloe, who's from Chicago, who loves teal, who uses Pinterest, who shops at Whole Foods, loves French bulldogs, uh, and does yoga. And the reason this example <laughs> is so funny is because it typifies this type of idea that we have about customer avatars. We tend to get lost in the demographics and a lot of people like to say, ah, oh, well, we're going to add psychographics and understand how they feel. And yes, customer journey is important. But what's really, really interesting is at the end of the day, more important than the psychographics and demographics is the sales frequency and seeing that as the 30,000 foot view. We can dive back into those details later mm. and they may those may be details that we may find. It may be like a feminine product you know, like 98% of people who purchase this are women and the 2% are men late at night, you know, in the, in the middle of the night, buying those products for their women or their wife or spouse or partner, you know? So like, yes, some of those, like we could, we may wind up with that information, but we can't always start with that. The goal is to start with sales frequency and sales frequency says, 
light, sporadic, you know, sporadic, random, light, mild, moderate, and heavy. I tend mm-hmm. to break it down into four categories. So it's light, mild, moderate, and heavy. Uh, a little known fact, if you buy two or more Coke products, and I'm drinking uh, Coke Zero right now, I call it Man Coke. If you're drinking two or more uh, of those a year, you're considered a heavy buyer. Two so a year. Well, two I'm, a year is all I'm buying like uh, three to five, when, you know, every week or two. So you were in I mean, the, wrong about the two liter bottles. <laughs> we're in the wrong industry. Uh, because when you look at their profit margins, when you look at their sales model, all they want to do is just sell one a year to one person for a dollar. And how many billions of dollars is that? That's their baseline. And I'm making, I'm, you know, making that up a little bit, but, but the, the, the theory is, is pretty practical here is that at the end of the day, according to Coca-Cola, that if you buy two or more, you're considered a heavy buyer. If you're, if you buy one a year, you're a light or sporadic buyer. So their sales model is predominantly based on having, capturing all the sales and having light, mild, moderate, and heavy. And so when we look at this, the great example I use is um, uh, most people think Pareto's law applies to, you know, 80% of our income comes from 20% of our clients. That's actually a misappropriation of that. Um, that's a, for another podcast, okay. but, but at the end of the day, uh, the, the, the profit that you would mark your cap on your profit or your, your profit caps out. There we go. There's the words, your profit caps out at like 26% with your heaviest buyers. So even if you focused all your energy into your heaviest buyers all the time, you're still not going to get more than 23 to 25% of your margin, you know? uh, So that begs us like, wait, how do we get more money? Well, don't just focus on your heavy buyers. Mm -hmm. So a great example is a hobby. I do pottery. And so I have people who have bought whole sets for me. And then I follow up with them and say, Hey, uh, would you like to uh, uh, check out some of the new stuff I've got? Uh, What would you like to complete your set? So they're my like regular buyers, but then I do holiday sales. There's people that just want to buy an ornament from me for 20 bucks and that's it. So in the business and consulting world, you know, you may have your main package that's your go-to. Um, and then you may have repeat clients that you have on a plan strategically. And so they're your heavier buyers. But what if somebody just needs like, hey, you know, uh, ben, ben or Steven, can you just like help me out with this thing? That's what consulting is. And so you may create just a lower tiered offer as an, a way to gather more profitability. Mm-hmm. Um, in the product world, think of in the product world, think of ways to drive sales sporadically or randomly. Then think of coupons. You know, you think of coupons, you think of sales events. Um, the reason we tend to buy cars is not because we need a car, is because we're being prompted to buy a car and we need a car. So uh, those sign to drive events and all those things, you know, they may release a new car and that's, oh, that's great. Uh, this is the new Acura. You know, there was a commercial uh, for for the new Acura on the Super Bowl a few years ago, but then they never did a follow-up. So nobody bought it. Mm-hmm. So you need to do, you know, launch the product, give them a call to action, show them why feature and benefit, and then share an experience. Oh, it's JD Powers and Associates with, you know, five gold stars. So the idea here is that we have a sales structure that prompts people 
to purchase according to the means that we want to increase. So if you're looking at your product or your sales force and saying, oh, wow, where are the gaps? We've got lots of heavy buyers. Well, what are ways that we can increase light buyers? What are ways that we can increase? So that is undone. That is undone and made more complicated. Profitability is undone and complicated by having our super complex persona. Uh-huh. Now, I will add a little asterisk at the end of that and say, your personas may be types of people. They may be types of roles. Uh, there's a friend of mine works over at Dell. He became a uh, business acquaintance and he's won several awards for their content because he understood that there's different types of people that are managers, technicians, supervisors, you know, and leaders running companies. And they need different information and they come to Dell Sometimes some of those people may be promoted, sometimes they don't. And so he developed this this theory that a website was like a Rubik's cube. People could enter through any side of the cube. And Mm -hmm. so these people had different needs, but it was based on the problems they wanted to solve. So problems and and creating avatars based on problems and roles Mm -hmm. is fine. If I want to buy pet food, Um, I want to buy kitten food because I have a kitten. I want to buy hairball and weight control because the problem or the goal that I have is I want a healthy cat. And the problem I want to solve is keeping them thin and trim. And the same goes for what are the goals and the problems? Sometimes people buy products because of joy too. So so don't always think of it as problems, but thinking Mm -hmm. of it is what is their desired state? They want to go from here to here. And the more universal we make that, in our understanding of our personas, the more effective we can be to drive sales in each of those different sales frequencies of light, right. mild, moderate, and heavy. Not so no, no to the products. avatar, no to the avatar, yes to the sales frequency, and yes to the problems and desired states that you want them to, to gain. Got it. Okay. What's number three? Okay. I see you're, you're, not, you're not a hypocrite when it comes to cats. I see behind you. This is true. Uh, yes. So uh, that's Mr. <laughs> Peanut Butter. He's my my best friend and he's the manager. He was coming in to check on us to, during today's nice. podcast. I, make hope sure he, I hope he that, thinks you're doing a good job. I hope so too. So you're not going to trip me up uh, on this third question. So third question, third question. Uh, we compete against specific competitors. And the example I'll use is luxury brands against luxury brands, economy brands against economy brands and so on. So if you're a luxury brand, you compete against specific brands. Uh, it does make sense, honestly, because, yeah, if you're going to, you know, it's going to be BMW versus Mercedes, you know, something like that. It's not, you know, or you're not going to go BMW or like, a, or like a Corolla. I don't know, presumably at least. I don't know. That's what I would think. But I was looking for my bell because I was going to ring it, but. I'm not going to ring it because it's no, again, that's false. That is just teasing me. Oh my God. I'm sorry. Looking so, for my bell. Come on. Uh, so no <laughs> bell for you today. Uh, so what's interesting is that according to brands, I need, I will use that button more often. It's broken actually. <laughs> so according to brand science, all brands compete for the same mental space in your head in their category all brands meaning whether it's the camry or the or the so if you're talking about cars all cars compete against all other car brands and brands their same size so if i'm a business 
I'm obviously going to measure my growth and size and profit according to my peers. So if you and I, you know, like we're business buddies and you wanted to say like, hey, let's talk about our growth. And maybe we were in a mentor group. <clears throat> we were in a mentor group. We would be, you know, gauging our growth where we are and we would using those numbers be like, oh, we're, yeah, oh, we we're up 13%. Well, what's 13% to you, 13% to me? We would be gauging. So in a, in a way, you can only effectively measure your impact and your sales according to someone who is approximately your size or near there to see a benchmark of market share that you have. Mm -hmm. But in the big picture, so it's good for comparison purposes, but in the big picture, people's evolutionary... Uh, brains like to hold on to mental associations. And so it literally is competing for mental space and associations in your head. Okay. So all brands, if I'm looking for a handbag, the brand that has the most mental, mental and physical availability brand that has the most mental and physical right. availability is the brand that grows. So mental availability, top of mindness, and physical availability, whether that's online, <laughs> my cat's scratching my, my chair right in front of me while we're on the podcast, <laughs> love it. And I can't throw anything at him. So mental availability and physical availability are the key two components of brand science. And so the brand that has the most top of mindness, now I go out in the world, you know, so I see advertisements for Chobani yogurt. I see advertisements for Toyota Corolla. Then I go out in the world and then I get the product. I may go to a used car lot and say like, hey, we only have a budget for my son or daughter, uh, for, for my child. Uh, we only have 2,500. What can we do? Or we only have, you know, this limited budget. Well, let me show you. Well, what about this one over here? Because I remember Toyota Corolla actually, you know, ranks really what, and that's where, not they get you, but that's where that space comes into play. Uh -huh. When you are ready to make a decision, when you're ready to make a decision, you have a subconscious that is programmed with the associations that you have meant. That's why perception is so important. If you have a really, really, you know, hokey pokey homemade looking brand and you're trying to show that you are in fact a top tier worth every penny consulting firm or product it's going to be really hard to do if the public perception is that you're not that so perception influences the purchase so perception influences the behavior and so ultimately we want to influence people by addressing their perception first and so we address that by using those category norms, researching the category, looking and seeing where can we hit the ball? Oh no, we can't use the Nabisco trademark. We can't use that color because it's trade dress. Oh, these are certain IP that are registered on the USPTO that we cannot use. Don't wanna do that. So that's where research comes really important in the front side of working with the brand, whether it's a new brand an, uh, a you know growing brand or a tired brand that wants to go from tired to inspired, we still have to do that research because those IP, that perception, and then you know those associations exist out there whether you acknowledge them or not. Right. So so ultimately, 
in addressing public perception, we can address people's motivation to purchase us using our distinctive assets. And by having those distinctive assets that are highly unique and famous in your category, people think of you first. So mental availability and physical availability. So right. if we want to accomplish that, the goal is to realize that we compete against all handbags, not just luxury handbags. We compete against all cars. And so then everyone's like, wow, well, then that means shouldn't I just be broadcasting my message all the time, all the time, everywhere, everywhere? Actually, no. If you focus on having the most distinctive brand assets first and tell your brand story and have word, shape, color, illustrations, you know, it's like Snickers bar. The other day I was hangry and someone said to me, literally, my, my, my significant other said to me, you're not you when you're you're hungry. And I said, <laughs> do you have the a Snickers bar? I said, do you have a Snickers bar? And any, and it's just a good example. You know, it's, we think of Snickers, the color, the typeface, maybe the celebrities that were, you know, Betty White and Danny DeVito and some of these folks that were in that commercial and you're not you when you're hum hungry. And, and so you think of all those things. And so if I am a current candy company or a current candy bar company or a new candy bar company or somebody who wants to reinvent my candy bar, I need to acknowledge that those associations exist. So to capture the most effect, even if I'm a luxury brand, even if I'm an economy brand, we have to realize that all those, ex those memories exist. And that's really the, the biggest thing that undoes when I talk about brand science, the biggest thing is that it's all about memories. Mm -hmm. and so I share with folks, what if I told you I could uncomplicate your marketing and I could make talking to your customers easier? And what if we could increase sales? And like, oh my gosh. And then I say, let's make memories together. And they're like, what? And I'm like, no, actually, seriously, what if I told you there's a science of how we make memories? They'd be like, I don't know who is this guy. Yeah. So it's it's always funny. I always right. like to play that it's card funny. a little bit because it sounds nebulous. It sounds weird. Right. But when we stand back, when we stand back and we realize that mental availability, the memories, that top of mindness for people to think of us is based on our ability for them to recall us. Well, how do they recall us? Through the senses, what are the senses? Word, shape, color, form, sound, music, illustration, character, you know, celebrity. And so there's there's over 13 sciences that I use to talk about this. And mm -hmm. that's 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 for my podcast that I gotta go do sometime. Right. More detail. Uh, but but you know, we already talked about semiotics and how people put things in boxes. And so it really comes down to is staying top of mind is is really the the ultimate goal. And right. so starting back to your question, how do you grow a brand, a successful brand? You know, whatever your category is, you got to research it and you got to know what are the customer cues, what are the industry norms, and ultimately you want to have the most distinctive set of assets that you have. And, and more than just three, you want to have as many as possible to have that top of mindness. Right. That's awesome. It's super helpful. I mean, look, main takeaways, obviously for me is, you know, hopefully for those listening or watching this is, you know, you want to be distinct, not necessarily different, but within category norms, uh, you know, you want to, don't want to get too overcome and over obsessed with demographics, but more thinking about what kind of transformation are the people looking for, for 
you know, whatever product or service you're selling. Uh, and, you know, and finally, top of mindness, top of availability, mental and physical, um, you know, across all products in your category, not just, you know, your direct competitors or those that are most like you, because, you know, the, 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 the brain space isn't that differentiated, uh, generally speaking. So people only have one brain, right? So that's, that's people only have one brain. So it's, it's, it's being the person that they associate with the thing that you do. Right. Awesome. Steven, thank you so much. I really appreciate taking out the time, explaining thanks all this Thanks for stuff. having me. And thanks everyone who's listening at home. Hopefully uh, you, uh, you have, have learned some new things today and, and maybe, maybe you got those questions right and Ben got them wrong. Yeah. If, if well, so, uh, let's talk about it. I did. <laughs> the, uh, it's like if people can learn more about you and what you do, what Stephen Fry does at quantumbranding.agency. Yep. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate it. And we'll see everybody else on the other side. Thanks. You're listening to Win Win, an entrepreneurial community with your host, Ben Wolf.